Welcome, everybody, to the April edition of the Hearsay Podcast. I'm Albert Brown. And I'm Jack Hoskins. In this month's episode, we'll be tackling the issue of defamation, particularly with regards to modern media sources. And uh, more specifically in this episode, we'll be talking about some jurisdictional issues. We'll be talking about the internet and defamation. And we'll be talking about defenses to a defamation claim. And with that, let's send it over to our interview with our distinguished guest, Queen's Counsel Robert Hawks. Mr. Hawks, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm a lawyer uh, with JSS Barristers here in Calgary. I did graduate from the USC back in 93, articled at the Court of Appeal, uh, went on to practice at a large national firm, and then joined uh, what is now JSS Barristers in 2005. Robert, your practice is quite broad, and you have worked with everyone from people in class action lawsuits to high-profile clients in your securities and litigation experience. What sort of people seem most susceptible to defamation? There, there's really sort of two uh, main groups. Uh, one are people that are involved uh, in some way either directly in politics or around the fringes of politics, and uh, things being what they are today, the political rhetoric and debate can get overheated and people then end up wanting to to sue or or at least send demand letters. And the second group are people that are not involved in politics at all, and they somehow get cross-threaded with an individual or a company who go after them, and then, again, they come forward seeking to protect their reputation. Does it tend to be people who have sort of a public presence, not just an anonymous person? I'm not sure that it tends to be people in that direction, but the people that have more of a public presence are certainly more interested in protecting their reputation. But you do see uh, private individuals that get involved in at least wanting to explore a defamation suit, people, uh, spouses, ex-spouses involved in a family law dispute, things of that nature where Neither one of them are a public name, but they're certainly going at it hard enough that one of them wants relief. When you are first approached about a possible defamation suit, what are people most concerned about? It Does it seem to be their reputation, possible effects on their family or work? Actually, it's a little different. Usually they just want it to stop. And so if they can get it to stop, that would be their ideal goal. And quite often people can be disappointed when they learn that generally under defamation law, making it stop is is one of the harder things to do. Because of free speech, people are pretty well allowed to say whatever they want, subject to whatever remedies may exist for someone if they happen to defame them. So explaining to people that you would have a very hard time getting an injunction to stop someone from publishing, but that you can get damages afterwards is quite disappointing to a lot of people. As we shift away from traditional media sources towards things like social media on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, how has defamation changed? Has it become more difficult? It's changed the way defamation works in a, in a few respects. One is because of social media and the prevalence and, and the access that people have to just put their thoughts online at any time. You see an awful lot more careless communication where people might actually have a remedy in defamation. You also have a lot of changes with respect to jurisdiction because you can put something online here in Calgary, but of course that's available in Turkey or that's available in China. So if someone is is defamed and they happen to be able to credibly claim that China is the correct venue, they can commence legal proceedings in China and you're sitting in your living room having to somehow deal with that. And it's not that legal proceedings in your own jurisdiction are easy, but they're certainly a lot easier to deal with than claims in another jurisdiction. With such large organizations involved and the potential to publish across a variety of jurisdictions, how do they decide which jurisdiction is the correct one? 
Well, it's actually the same choice of law, or not choice of law, but forum convenience test that you get in any other lawsuit. Did the tort take place in Alberta or were the effects felt in Alberta? Uh, where are the witnesses located? Where are the parties located? All of the, the different elements that a court looks to as to whether or not they're going to, one, take jurisdiction, whether they have jurisdiction, and then two, whether or not there's a more convenient jurisdiction for proceedings to, to go to. Can you elaborate on the form convenience test? Because there's certainly the possibility that you can have a complainant in one area, a defendant in another area, and the business or platform where the comments were made in a completely separate region, such as Delaware. Uh, so there's there's always um, sort of three major elements. Uh, one is whether or not the courts actually have jurisdiction. Two is whether, um, even if there is jurisdiction, whether there's a more convenient form for that to be uh, uh, to go to trial in. And, and that determines where the trial should go. But then there's a third element, which is the, tr- the law that would apply. Um, so you can have um, all of the witnesses in one location uh, and, a, and a tort uh, having occurred in that uh, location, and then there's jurisdiction, and that's probably the best place for the action to proceed. But there could be a contract between the parties where they've both agreed that the law of Delaware will apply in which case you have the Alberta courts presiding over a trial here, uh, but they have to apply the, the law of Delaware. And so then you have to go uh, through and prove uh, what the law of Delaware is as it applies to that dispute. Would you say that defamation lawsuits have become more common since social media? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think people are an awful lot more aware of it and interested in it. You'll see online back and forth and, and uh, threats of suits when people don't like what's being said online. But the, the key thing to understand about defamation law is that people are allowed to express their opinion. And so negative opinions, even aggressively negative opinions, are not defamatory unless they're accompanied by either a, a complete absence of facts or facts that are incorrect. Because And the way that it fits together, if, if you think of an example, say, of, of someone expressing an opinion that uh, they saw you on the mall a couple of minutes later, the bank was robbed, and then a minute after that, they saw you running down the mall, and therefore, in, in their opinion, you're a bank robber, you robbed the bank. And even though that would be defamatory, because the, the opinion that you robbed the bank is an opinion that you committed a crime... Uh, and is obviously going to make people think more ill of you. Because the facts are all set out and they're all correct, it's not defamatory because the person hearing the opinion is in a position to form their own impression whether or not you did likely rob the bank or not. And the more outlandish the opinion uh, in relation to the facts, the more likely it is that the person hearing the opinion will think less of the person expressing the opinion rather than the target of the opinion. So if you take the same example and you throw in one additional fact where I say, as I saw you running in and around the time the bank was robbed, $20 bills floating out of the bag as you ran. Now I'm expressing an opinion that is going to make a listener far more likely to believe that you robbed the bank. And if it turns out I just made up that last fact, now I'm inserting a fact which doesn't give people the opportunity to form their own impression of the opinion because they have false information. So they may conclude that in fact you did rob the bank when, in fact, you were just running to catch a bus. So what you're saying is the difference between defamation and just a wrong opinion is that insertion of a demonstrably false fact, like in your example, that 
someone saw someone running in a mall near a bank when the bank was robbed, that thinking or believing they're a bank robber would be one thing because you believed it based on what you actually saw. But when you insert that extra element of money coming out of a bag, that's really the key to what changes it from just someone being wrong versus defamed the person that is accused. It is. And so the the real guts of defamation law come in in the defenses because whenever you express anything that would cause right-thinking members of society to think less of someone, then that statement is defamatory. So immediately you can see that it would cover virtually, you know, all communications or, or a huge chunk of them. And so you get to the defenses very quickly. And the key defenses are truth, privilege, or fair comment. And truth is, is you would expect it, you can say anything you want, provided that it's strictly speaking true. The qualified privilege or absolute privilege comes up. For instance, anything that you publish within a court proceeding is privileged. It's absolutely privileged. You can't sue someone for testimony they give in court or for pleadings that they draft. There's also qualified privilege that can come, which can be defeated if people go beyond the bounds of, of where the uh, privilege is supposed to protect them. But certain forms of communication are privileged, generally where someone has a duty to communicate information to someone who has a duty to receive it. So a good example would be nurse's notes. A nurse has a duty to record information on a chart. That's actually a publication once someone else reads it, but the doctor has a duty to receive that information, so that would be privileged. And then the third main defense is fair comment. And fair comment is that you are entitled to express your opinion, provided that it's based on facts that are expressed and that the facts are accurate. And it's that last one that often comes into play, particularly when you're dealing with political debates, and people don't really understand it unless they've had some exposure to defamation law. And so you'll oftentimes have people coming to you saying, well, so-and-so said this about me, and I want to sue him. And what this is just happens to be a very negative opinion that they are entitled to express if, so long as they get their facts right. And then there's a fourth concept that's very important, both in fair comment and qualified privilege, and that's concept of malice, which is even if you express your opinion and it would otherwise be safe because you had the facts correct, if you express the opinion for a malicious reason, uh, such as having an ulterior motive, uh, so that you're not actually expressing a heartfelt opinion. You're, in fact, just using that cloak of the fair comment defense to express something that'll be quite damaging because you're doing it for an ulterior purpose. And if you do something maliciously, even if you otherwise have a qualified privilege defense or a fair comment defense, then the malice can defeat that defense and allow the plaintiff to, to gain recovery. With regard to privilege, am I correct in stating that members of parliament are also protected from lawsuits and liability for what they say within the House? Correct. So if you say it in the chamber, either in debate or in question period, then it's absolute privilege. Um, but if the same uh, politician walks outside and gives a press conference in the, in the foyer of the House of Commons, uh, then there's no privilege that attaches to that. And that's why sometimes you'll see in a heated debate on the floor of the House of Commons, uh, one of the members standing up and, and daring the other member to say that outside the chamber. Getting back to social media again for a second, do you think that in the last 20 years there has been any change in the public's idea of what kinds of statements are deserving of a defamation lawsuit, what kinds of statements warrant this kind of response? 
And has the law changed in any way in response to the internet? I'm not sure how much it's changed in terms of people's perceptions. You think of politicians as an example. People have long believed that you have to take whatever a politician says with a grain of salt. So they're used to politicians saying something that they don't believe to be true. Whether that's a, a fair perception or not, that's a perception that's been out there. Now, when you deal with something like Twitter, you see really crazy stuff online all the time. And when it's expressed by someone that you don't know, and you may not even become aware of it, it doesn't really become much of a problem where you, where you often see people sending demand letters or proceeding with suits in terms of these Twitter spats is when you have two people involved that actually know each other from another story. And uh, one of them is just using Twitter, or maybe both of them are, to try and get their message out. And uh, they start crossing a line or two. And that's when people take action. So when dealing with things like Facebook and Twitter or YouTube, you'll often hear people defend themselves saying that, oh, it's just parody, it's just satire, or even, oh, it's so outrageous that nobody could ever possibly believe this. Is this something that's taken into account, or is it just like... Uh... Sort of like the ridiculous promotion in Carbala smoke balls. The courts do take it into account, but understand that satire doesn't actually change any of the defamation defenses. It's it's simply another way of, of expressing content, expressing intent. And so you still have to be able to fit yourself within the rubric of one of the traditional defamation defenses uh, if you're going to, to succeed in defending the, the defamation suit. The rise of social media has given people, given average people, an easier path to a mass audience, unlike traditional journalists whose audience come after a lengthy education and process of reputation building. And today, any sentiment put on social media can take off and go viral. So do you see this as a real danger causing an uptick in defamation lawsuits, or is this just hysteria? I think there's two sort of key elements to that. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, just how easy it is to publish. I mean, anyone can pull out their phone, you know, tap out the most horrendous message and hit send, and then it's out there. And so the, you get that immediacy that makes it easy to send something that you might not have sent years ago if it required you to draft an op-ed piece and send it to the paper and try and get it published. You've got an awful lot more time to think about it before it gets out there. But the second big change is because it goes to so many people uh, so quickly, if you have something being published by someone with a lot of followers or with a popular hashtag that makes sure that it's seen by a lot of eyeballs, you can really increase the damages associated with the publication because it's not just going to a few people in a letter, but can be literally seen by thousands of people within minutes. Okay, so regular people these days are worried about old tweets and blog posts and so on being dug up and taken out of context. Now, is it reasonable for them to fear legal action for these things? No. The Limitations Act, which governs just generally, does govern defamation law as well. And so you've got two years to sue from the date that you knew or ought to have known about something. And an interesting anomaly there, if you haven't heard about it for years, then it may be a lot harder to try and claim you've suffered some harm if it didn't even come to your attention. And even, even shorter, much shorter, under the Defamation Act uh, in Alberta, Section 13, if the defamatory posting is by a, a media outlet, either a newspaper, magazine, or a broadcaster, so 
television or, or radio, you have a, a much shorter limitation period where you have to be preparing and serving a defamation notice within three months from the date of the defamation or your right to sue is extinguished. With social media being increasingly prevalent in our society, a lot of times people aren't necessarily as worried about the monetary damages that they can get in remedy from a court. They're more worried about the social functions that these things play, that defamation play into, in terms of their reputation, their lives, and the lives of their families. How effective do you believe injunctions are in a world where people can just pick up a new device, create an anonymous account, and just continue to trumpet the exact same messages that caused them to get into trouble in the first place? Well, there's a couple of elements to that. If you get an injunction against an individual or an organization which has uh, an account with a fair number of followers, first of all, they run a real risk trying to get around the court order, obviously the risk of being in contempt and and, uh, experiencing far more severe consequences. But secondly, if you you are defamed by an individual who's got 10,000 followers, and uh, you get an injunction and they think, well, I'm just going to put the same crap up by creating a fake account. The fake account, of course, starts with zero followers. So it might not have any currency or get picked up at all. So it's in, in some ways the development of social media where followers uh, have become fairly key uh, actually does have the effect of limiting the ability of, of sites with no followers um, to get any kind of a following. And it, it, in fact, it's quite interesting. If you look at, at the Russian uh, hackers that have been trying to influence U.S. elections, uh, they were pursuing a certain strategy in 2016 of having uh, these bot accounts uh, where they're uh, putting out various messages. And what the U.S. intelligence community has figured out is that today they're uh, behaving much differently because uh, there's been systems put in place to uncover those types of accounts and and, uh, deregister them. So now instead what they're doing is they're posting on uh, uh, popular sites where uh, they, anyone can join, they post their message, and then they're hoping that legitimate um, partisans from one party or the other pick up their message and repost it and thereby get their message out into the, the ether in a way where it can't really be shut down by Twitter because it's being posted by real people uh, who are involved in the political process. So it's um, the strategies for communicating messages, defamatory messages or non-defamatory messages, are changing as uh, agents who are seeking change uh, become more sophisticated. Do you think that defamation law is adapting sufficiently to changes like this? And, and more broadly, do you, th- do you think there are any ways in which Canadian defamation law now really needs to improve any kind of uh, shortcomings? Well, of course, the biggest adaption in the last few years has been uh, passing of, of an act in Ontario and another uh, in BC. Um, in Ontario, uh, it's called... Uh, just to make sure I get it correct, the Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation uh, Act, and uh, which everyone just refers to as SLAP. And uh, essentially, it's a legislated uh, attempt to ensure that people can comment on matters of public interest in a way that they will have less fear of getting sued. And it uh, came about in response to the actions of, of some folks to try and limit 
the negative press that they were getting by suing people, a libel chill effect. And so the legislature stepped in and said, look, if you can um, show that you are commenting on a matter of public interest and someone sues you, then the onus will shift uh, for them to show that their uh, suit has merit and that uh, there is likely to be no defense to the suit. Uh, and even then, if they're able to show that, they also have to show that the damage that they've suffered or they're going to suffer um, is significant enough that it would outweigh the public interest in not allowing such a suit to continue. And so when it first came in, it uh, was uh, well-received and was seen as an important step in terms of, of stopping these libel chill suits that were being put out by some. Uh, interestingly, though, the pendulum has swung a bit back because the slap suits then started to be used strategically to shut down legitimate claims. And so there was a number of these applications. A, a group of, of six of them had made their way up to the Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, which released a, a bundle of decisions in 2018, uh, which made it clear that, that this wasn't like a summary judgment process. These were relatively um, bright-line thresholds uh, that people had to get over, but that once they did, they weren't going to be delving into the merits uh, as you would in a summary judgment application to try and, and shut these suits down. And so there seems to have been more of a balance that's been put into place now but again, there's, it's good legislation, and, and it exists in Ontario and B.C. We don't yet have anything like that in Alberta. When you hear about defamation cases in media or on social media even, you often hear about apologies or retractions as part of the remedy process. How effective do you think these are in repairing reputations? So uh, there's a couple issues that arise there. Um, First of all, that when you say that, you're referring to a negotiated settlement because if you, if you take it to trial, the court can order damages, they can order material taken down, they, they can't order you to apologize. Um, so whenever you see an apology, it's usually negotiated. And there's a distinction between an apology and a retraction. I've always found apologies to be worth next to nothing. Um, clearly, the person believed what they said apologizing for it has a certain disingenuine quality to it. But a retraction is, is, is far different. So when you see someone posting uh, an accusation that, you know, you're a crook, when, when uh, you go after them and they agree to resolve it and they say, sure, I'll, I'll post a retraction, it's usually a, a negotiated set of wording that's used and, uh, and they make it clear that they said this uh, they didn't have a foundation for it. Um, they're withdrawing the allegation. Whether they then say, I'm sorry that I posted it or not, to me, it just doesn't add anything. If you're getting a retraction, you've done the most you can to rehabilitate your reputation at that point. I think it's time we should address the Donald Trump defense. So you're, you're referring there to uh, a case that was recently decided uh, by the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, uh, Mr. Justice Ma. Uh, in involving the plaintiffs were the West Edmonton Mall uh, property and uh, one of the owners, David Germazian. And, and so there you've got a really unfortunate situation where a former tenant of the, of the mall uh, was evicted for non-payment of rent and then uh, embarked on uh, um, a considerable uh, campaign of vilification against the Germazians and, and the mall. 
and uh, it ultimately uh, came forward not not to a trial but uh, in response to an injunction application brought by the plaintiffs and one of the defenses raised um, by the defendant in that case was that uh, she was merely doing what Donald Trump does which is basically saying whatever was on her mind uh, and if it was okay for Donald Trump to do that, then it would be okay for her to do that. And the court specifically found that there is no Donald Trump defense uh, in Alberta. That case involved a self-represented individual. Is it common to see self-reps in the defamation field, or do you usually see people with representation? Um, it's, it's a mix. Um, litigation, unfortunately, has become so expensive that it's very hard for individuals uh, to fund uh, litigation through. And, and that was the driving force behind the Supreme Court decision in Hereniac, which uh, gave a big boost to uh, summary judgment and similar summary procedures to resolve lawsuits. And, and specifically, the Supreme Court found that even if you, you couldn't end up with a perfect decision, uh, an imperfect decision was better if it was rendered in a timely and more cost-effective manner rather than a, a perfect decision which never gets rendered because people couldn't afford to go through the entire process. So the Supreme Court came down and and really uh, put a planted a flag in terms of trying to to make litigation more reasonable. And so the the impact of that is that you see an awful lot more uh, effort involved in trying to resolve things early. So things are not quite as expensive for everyone and even even with those changes, uh, an awful lot of people can't really afford legal advice. And so if they are sued in defamation, they would have no choice but to represent themselves in terms of trying to negotiate a resolution. But the cost of that also sees that oftentimes when threats are made, people will issue a retraction uh, if they didn't have a basis for saying what they said. Sometimes people just get angry. They don't like your political views, so they call you a communist or they call you a Nazi. And, you know, maybe they believe it at the time, they feel it very strongly, but if they have nothing to back that up, the, the difficulty is the words communism or communist and the word Nazi mean something. They have a specific meaning. And so really what people are doing is expressing their feeling, but they're doing so in such a way that might convey a defamatory meaning uh, well beyond what they were intending, and they just have nothing to back it up. And in that situation, frankly, the best thing for them to do is to, to retract. This uh, brings up an interesting point because words do often have multiple meanings and it can be difficult to tell what was meant by a remark that is taken in a defamatory way. Does the intention behind the remark hold a lot of weight in defamation proceedings or is it just about the effect that the statement had? No, uh, the intention of what is being communicated is is critical because, of course, you can say the exact same words and mean something very different based on the context. I was involved in a case many years ago, over 20 years ago, where a journalist had, had called a politician pig-headed and, uh, and stubborn uh, and uh, called the, the same politician deceitful. And then when questioned, uh, the journalist tried to uh, portray those remarks as uh, compliments. He uh, said, you know, it was like, Churchill deceived Hitler into thinking he would land at Calais instead of Normandy. You know, it was a compliment. And uh, by pig-headed and, and uh, stubborn, that also was a compliment because it was referring to someone who had strong will. 
and you know it seemed at the time anyways to be amusing to the to the journalist who was answering the questions but of course his boss uh, settled the lawsuit about two days later uh, because their position was just indefensible at that point and that concludes our episode on defamation many thanks to robert hawks and cjsw for making this podcast possible this hearsay podcast is brought to you by the calgary chapter of pro bono students canada in conjunction with cjsw on Treaty 7 land. You can find more information from Robert Hawks at calgaryrob.com and you can find more episodes just like this, the Hearsay Podcast at CJSW, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.